CJSW's 2019 funding drive is now live. Pledge to this podcast by visiting cjsw.com slash donate. Is climate change a health issue? This is The Big Question. Each month in The Big Question, we explore the world's biggest challenges with researchers from the University of Calgary. When we think of climate change, we usually think of environmental impact, melting ice caps, rising sea levels, more and more extreme weather. But what about our health? A changing planet affects our bodies just as much as it does the ecosystems we live in. In this episode of The Big Question, we look at how climate change harms our physical and mental well-being. We'll also talk about how health and well-being could be the catalyst that helps people overcome the hesitation to do something about climate change. My name is Dr. Joe Vipond. I'm an emergency physician at the Foothills Medical Center in the Rocky View General Hospital. I'm also a clinical assistant professor at the University of Calgary in the Department of Medicine and board member of the Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment. You just mentioned the Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment. What is your role with that group? I have two roles, really. Um, I'm a board member on the national board, so it's a national organization with employees based in Toronto, and we're the governance board that oversees that. But I'm also the regional committee member for, sorry, the chair of the regional committee here in Alberta, which means I've convened a bunch of other health professionals um, who care about the environment to work together on this stuff. You advocate against using coal as an energy source. Why did you settle on that issue? Well, coal's easy, right? It's got all the badness of air pollution and all the badness of the GHG. So it's a really inefficient way of um, producing electricity. Uh, it, it, it costs a lot. It's, uh, um, it, it produces a lot of greenhouse gases for what you get. But it also produces a lot of stuff that we really don't like. Neurotoxins like mercury, air pollutants like sulfur dioxide and nitrous oxides and carcinogens and, and things that kill you like particulate matter 2.5. So when you combine the health impacts along with the greenhouse gas impacts, just a no-brainer that it has to go first. North and south of the border, there are groups and organizations that push for reintroducing coal for job reasons or for economic reasons. What's your approach to these organizations and individuals? What's really amazing is how fast this has evolved over the last, you know, four or five years. The, the coal phase-out was announced in November of 2015, and um, that was regulations that said, you will, thou shalt not burn coal after 20, uh, 2030. Um, but what's happened since then is the economics has shifted so fast that now the utilities themselves are phasing out those coal-fired power plants earlier than their legislated um, uh, limits. So now we have um, TransAlta, Capital Power, you know, the local uh, utilities here in Alberta that are either shutting down their coal plants early or converting them to natural gas burning uh, facilities. And we can, we can talk about the dangers of that. But, um, you know, from an air pollution perspective, that's, that's amazing and how fast it's happening. So it's never coming back because how are you going to convince a private company to, to reintroduce a, a power source that, that kills people? They don't want to do that. So it seems there are two ways climate change can affect our health. There's the pollutants and activities that cause climate change, and then there's the effects of climate change itself. What are some of the ways pollutants affect our health? So whenever you burn something, it emits uh, pollutants. And so the, the things that we think uh, you know, normally are um, 
the stuff that we as humans burn, which is natural gas and coal. Um, coal in and of itself is a very impure um, uh, hydrocarbon. So there's lots of other things in there. There's there's things that dirtied up sulfur and nitrogen and and heavy metals. Um, so whenever you burn that, the, those emissions go into the atmosphere, and you and I are exposed to it. And it's it's one of those interesting pollutants that. Um, it's not like water pollutant where you can like buy bottled water and hope to get good bottled water or buy the organic food and make sure you don't get pesticides. Every single human on the planet um, is exposed to the air we breathe. We don't have a choice. We're, we're kind of stuck with it. So, uh, so, so these pollutants go through the atmosphere and, and they have a, a, uh, you know, a whole myriad of impacts. Um, the big one we like to talk about well, is, uh, is particulate matter 2.5 because it has the most robust data. And particulate matter 2.5 just means really, really small things. So 2.5 means 2.5 microns, and that means any substance that's small enough to go into your lungs, through, pass through the capillaries, into your bloodstream, and then have systemic effects. Now, because it can be anything, it could be, you know, dust on a road, uh, it could be salt spray on a, uh, uh, on the ocean's edge, but there's not a lot of evidence that, you know, dust on a road and, and, and salt spray uh, are that impactful. It's really those combustion, particulate matter 2.5 that we worry about. Um, and they're associated with, with, uh, uh, you know, all sorts of things. They're associated with, um, for pregnant, uh, uh, People that's associated with small for gestational age babies, so smaller than than expected. They're associated with um, miscarriages. Um, as you're developing as a child, it's associated with poor lung development, um, the development of asthma, um, and then as we get older, uh, when you when you're like. Uh, ancient like my age, um, you start to have heart attacks and strokes and heart arrhythmias, and that all leads to mortality. So there's actually a direct relationship between the amount of particulate matter 2.5 in the air and mortality. And so uh, that's the most important pollutant to limit out there. But the coal phase out impacted like 9% of Canada's emissions. That's like, Alberta's alone was 6% of Canada's emissions from one industry. Um, and that's from a single regulation. So when we talk about this, you know, is it should be the individual or should it be systemic change? Well, geez, with one regulation, we had such a massive impact. And part of that's because, you know, you take behavior out of it, right? It's, it's you know, three, four companies that are having to make the changes rather than, you know, four, four million Albertans. What are some of the ways climate change affects our health? It's going to change everything. So therefore, um, you know, there are so many impacts. So we can go through some of the, the simple things. Uh, we all live through the, the, the smoke of, of May this year as uh, the high-level fires came through. Um, we're expected to have um, more and more intense fires as, as the climate crisis progresses. And um, so that just means more, more smoke impacts. So you can imagine my, my children, the... Um, Last summer in in August during the during the, the August smoke again, um, they were at camp and, and they weren't allowed to go outside. Like here you are at this outdoor summer camp and you're not allowed to go and do those outdoor activities that you know is the whole purpose for you being there, hiking and canoeing and all those things. Um, anybody who uh, has any kind of health um, predisposition like asthma or COPD or uh, even heart disease, or, or they're just recommended not to to participate in the outside world, you know, lock yourself in your home and don't go out. Um, I saw one woman in November of last year who, this was three months after the, the smoke event, who um, 
said she continued to have um, asthma exacerbations. She had never really fully recovered from August. So this is, you know, that smoke is a very real problem. Um, and along with fires and floods and increasing storms, we're having these periods where we're evacuating entire towns. These are essentially internally displaced people, right? This is internal refugees where um, all of high level has to move down to Slave Lake or Fort McMurray all moves to, to you know, other, other communities in northern Alberta. And when you lose uh, your community, you, you lose all the things that go along with that. You lose your primary health provider, you lose your access to your hospital and your records, um, and you're putting put in these crowded conditions that aren't really conducive to good health. So um, I have big concerns about that as, as things worsen. Now, what about social well-being? What are some of the ways climate change affects our society? I'm a really big fan of food. I eat food almost every day, um, and therefore food security is, is really important. And so right now we live in a time where we have uh, you know, illnesses that are being caused by the excess of food. We, we tend to be overeating, um, but it's pretty um, evident that in the not-too-far future we're going to have issues um, with underproduction and, and food access, food scarcity, food scarcity. I think the number I heard from last year was that uh, there was 2018's harvest was 60% below average uh, because of just the strangeness of the weather that we're having. Um, And some people would say, well, you know, how can it be getting worse? We're having a longer growing season. We're having more frost-free days. Um, But what we're really lacking is that consistency in weather. So that nice, um, uh, cool, wet spring allowing for germination of the seed. And then, you know, it gets a bit warmer during the summer and it uh, it rains, but not too much, um, and not too hot, and things don't dry out too much. And then in the in the fall, you really need those long, hot, dry um, days so that uh, the harvest can be brought in. And we're losing that. Like you know, I don't know how much of the harvest didn't come in from um, you know Friday's snow event, but I'm sure it's a a good percentage. And and those those crops are out in the field rotting now. So food security is a big issue. Um, and then. I think it's important um, to recognize that uh, um, this is really hard on our mental health too. So we have people going through through two th- different things: um, anxiety, because um, anxiety is a, a very normal response to things that are beyond our control. Like, what can I do? I'm anxious because there's this thing that's happening and I can't control it. And what? bigger event than is is there than the climate crisis like it's such a, a big phenomenon so you know there's lots of people we're seeing that are you know two in the morning fetal position cold sweats um and then going along with that is uh eco grief or or another word is uh, anticipatory grief because we know we're about to lose those things that uh that are really important to us like almost all of us when we go on holidays we go somewhere to be surrounded by nature, you know, Banff, uh, the coast, uh, Okanagan, playing on lakes. Um, how much of this stuff are we going to lose? Um, are we going to lose our forest? Are we going to lose our, our natural beauty? Are we going to lose our safety? Um, you know, the, we're losing the Great Barrier Reef right now as we speak. And if you actually take three minutes to just think about that, like that's that's really profound and really impactful. So um, mental health is a, is a huge problem. You know, I was, I was in that, personally in that space about, you know, six, seven years ago before I started getting involved. And I really found that um, starting to 
be involved in creating change was was really the most powerful antidote, the most powerful prescription um, that I could take, that I can give people. Um, it's actually Joan Baez who has the the famous um, and I think really uh, insightful quote that action is the antidote to despair. Um, and so once I started having a a real big impact on policy and, and, and changing things. It was really, really healthy for me. So many things are affected by climate change, but it seems like a lot of people still aren't willing to do anything about it. How do we make people care about climate change? That's the million-dollar question, right? I mean, we've been dealing with this issue for for at least 30 years now. It was 1988 when NASA scientist James Hansen spoke before Congress and said that this was going to be a big issue that was coming down the pipe. And um, we're still not doing the political um, big changes or individual changes that we need to to safeguard our, our future. So um, I think that's this is just a really difficult, um, wicked problem. Um, we have very nice lifestyles. You know, fossil fuels have given us a lot. Um, there's a uh, a really smart guy out of uh, Toronto called Tom Rand who talks about, you know, this is this is like the party, like we're having so much fun. Um, uh, fossil fuels are giving us, you know, these these lifestyles that are are like gods, and but at some point the party ends and we have the hangover, and um, you know we have a potentially massive civilization threatening hangover um, coming to us, so. Going back to your question, how do we make people care? I think it has to be, we have to make these changes easy for them. So it can't be hugely lifestyle disrupting. We have to make people better educated because this is a really difficult topic and there's been a lot of misinformation that's been flying around about this and we need to make sure that we um, are getting the right information to the majority of citizens. Uh, and we need to start having stronger political will to actually take on some of these things. Because a lot of the people that are pushing back on this action, um, it may not be the majority of Canadian citizens, but it's certainly some of the loudest. And we just need to recognize that the, you know 65% of Canadians really want aggressive climate action. Um, and we need to to make sure they're listened to and not just the loud ones. The other thing that I see all the time is um, people want change, but they don't want to pay for it. You know, they're willing to pay less than um, an annual cell phone bill to, to help to prevent the climate crisis. And I think it goes back to this idea that are we telling people both sides of the stories? Like, it's going to cost you this much to deal with the climate crisis, but how much is it going to cost you not to deal with it? I mean, we're already dealing with higher insurance costs. We're already dealing with, um, you know, losses and more intangible losses. Um, every disaster has a, a societal loss. And we're not factoring in those costs when it comes to making this calculation as to what I'm willing to pay. So I think we need to be much more explicit as to the costs of not acting, not just the costs of acting. How do we weigh systemic change versus individual change? This is a very topical issue right now because some people are framing this as, um, you know, it's not about industries or governments acting. It's really about the individual acting. Um, and when we talk about something like um, the coal phase, you can see why it was so 
um, I wouldn't say easy, but so um, uh, there wasn't as much resistance as you might have otherwise expected. Uh, part of that's the health impacts for sure, but part of it's that you're really trying to change the behavior of four companies in Alberta. Whereas if you're trying to do individual change, you actually have to change the behavior of four million Albertans. So it's like um, it's like when you're you're trying to make a car safer. It's much safer to uh, make a better frame for that car than to try and convince everybody to put on their seatbelt because um, not every you know changing behavior is much different than changing systems. So that being said, I think individual action is is really important. It's it's important for a couple of reasons. It's important because um, of modeling. So I have solar panels on my house. I'm pretty thrilled with them. I put them on about five years ago, and when I put them on, there was only one other uh, house in the neighborhood that has um, solar panels. But now there's um, now there's six, and we actually know this from scientific studies that solar panel are a viral phenomena that once you have a few solar panels in a neighborhood, the risk of a, or the, the chances of another solar panel going up is higher. So modeling is really important. You know, people come up to me and say, how did you do it? What was, what was the process? What's the economics? Why did you bother? Um, and, and so we can actually do that modeling and he tools two friends and so on and so on. And that's how you make big level change. Um, but the other thing that's really important too, from an individual perspective is, um, you know, no matter how aggressively we act on the climate crisis, things are going to get worse. Um, and that means that, uh, um, we're responsible to these future generations. And it's going to be really important for, for me as a father to tell my children or for others to tell their nieces or nephews or even to look themselves in the mirror at some point and say, you know, I, I really did do the best that I could. I, I really tried because, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's going to get nasty. It's been mentioned a few times this conversation, but what's stopping us from really making that big change? When you look at any change in any organization, it's really about trying to alter the status quo. We're very comfortable with the status quo. It's what we're used to, and trying to ask people to do something differently is always difficult. And now we're in a situation um, where certainly a number of individuals and companies have benefited from this status quo, and so therefore it's much more difficult um, uh, they are more apt to want to resist that change. From an individual perspective, um, you know, the idea of is it important for me to take one less overseas trip a year or uh, some other kind of major change, um, get a smaller car, get one less car, bike more, um, for this intangible future Right, so this, you know, it's me as an individual. Do I really have that impact? Um, is it really worth my sacrifice to for societal benefit? And I think that's really a hard trade-off for a lot of people. But really, that's what's required, right? Like, uh, if this is what's called a collective action problem, whether you look at it as individual countries fighting over the the climate piece of the pie or in individuals themselves, um, the reality is, is that we are all contributing to this and therefore we are all part of the solution. Um, and, and in a lot of ways, that's why systemic change is, is really important. A carbon price is exactly um, the perfect way of doing it because it's going to, if change behaviors um, 
in a very fair way, right? So that, uh, you know, if you decide that, well, now it's too expensive for me to fly to Cancun, you know, every year, um, you've made that choice based on external pricing factors. Um, and especially if we throw in the twist where um, we're giving money back to people, so you're paying the carbon price up front, and then you're getting this dividend in return, um, that also takes away some of the socioeconomic um, unfairness that goes along with with, uh, with something like a carbon price. There seems to be a backlash against climate change and carbon taxes, as we saw in the last provincial election. Are we back to square one? I just don't think our politicians are being honest with the citizens of this uh, of this country and this province. Um, we have a existential threat, and the um, politicians are telling people number one that it's not a big deal. We're going to be okay. We still have this runway of uh, fossil fuel production that we don't have to, um, you know, even think about tapering at all. Um, and also, you personally don't have to take any responsibility for this as a, as a polluter, because um, we're all polluters, right? Uh, so, um, so the real truth is, is that we face an existential threat, and we need um, radical systemic change in order to prevent civilization collapse. It comes as simple as that. So if you're going to um, recognize that we face this existential threat, then the next question is, is what are you going to do about it? And um, the economists who are the, you know, I'm a health climate specialist, but there are economists that are economy climate specialists. And, and they tell us that the least um, impactful, most efficient way of doing this is something like a, a price on carbon. Um, but from a, from a political perspective, um, that's seen as, as a third rail that, that certain leaders do not want to touch and can actually, on, on the opposing side, um, foster ferment or ferment um, uh, anger against this. Um, you, know, you as a um, soccer mom are being penalized for having to take your kids to soccer. How horrific is that? Well, once again, it's that false choice. You know, you need to um, think as that soccer mom, how can I do this better? And maybe that is in three years when you're buying a new car, say, well, you know, the carbon price is, is going to be impacting me. Let me get the most efficient vehicle possible. Um, instead of saying, um, you know, I have no responsibility. I wash my hands. It's somebody else's fault, somebody else's problem. So if people want to be responsible for their actions with regards to climate change, how do they get involved? Uh, well, there, I have a five-point uh, plan. So uh, let me just uh, run through these options for people. The first is, um, I think you do have to look after your own backyard, um, which means, you know, doing what you can uh, around you. And that's, um, you know, uh, if you can afford it, putting solar panels on your on your on your house, or or buying green electricity, or um, you know changing your transportation options so that you're uh, uh, either using a more efficient vehicle, or biking, or walking, or taking public transit, um, and consider eating you know less meats and and making some good choices uh, when it comes to your dietary. Um, but I think it's really important to recognize that you know those individual actions. I could go live in a cave and burn tallow for my for my light and me as a human being doing that isn't going to make the changes that 
that's necessary. So um, we do need to have some more systemic um, changes. So number two on the list uh, as, as to things to do is to learn as much about this as possible. This is a really complicated topic, like you could do, you know, a PhD on climate science. Um, but as a, as a citizen, it's at least your responsibility to understand the causes and effects of the climate crisis and, and the solutions that we can do. Because there's a lot of misinformation out there. And, and, and um, we need to start having this conversation more, we need to start talking to our our, our friends and family. Uh, to this point, it's been kind of a taboo subject. You know, who wants to go to a dinner party and, oh, let's talk about the end of the world. Yeah, you're the most fun guy. I want to sit beside you. Um, but yet, despite the fact this being a difficult topic, we need to start having that conversation because that's how we as, um, you know, a societal, uh, a social species makes change. And there's, uh, you know, this is the time where we need to start having that conversation with our uncle who's... Uh, um, you know, bad mouthing climate policy and, and explain where the where the misinformation lies. So that's number two. Number three is uh, considered divestment. You know, we have this um, idea of a carbon budget, which means there's only certain, uh, so much fossil fuels we can burn before we exceed that budget. And um, the climate crisis is a continuum. So the the worse we allow it to get, the worse the impacts on us are, so, which means we need to actually get rid of our fossil fuel use as, as quickly as possible. And when it comes to the stock market, these uh, companies, whether it's coal companies or other fossil fuel companies, are valued based on not so much how much money they earn every quarter, but how much reserves they have in the ground. And we have about five times the amount of reserves on the books um, than we are allowed to burn. So that means that these companies are essentially overvalued um, because one of two things are going to happen. Either governments are going to make the systemic changes that are required to prevent the climate crisis from um, destroying us. And in that, in that case, we're not going to burn all those, those fossil fuels. But the other possibility is, is governments will allow this to unfold as it is and civilization collapses and therefore we won't burn those reserves. So either way, um, those reserves aren't going to be burned. Um, so I think it's a good financial decision. Um, number four is it's time to get involved uh, politically. And so politically means, you know, find a politician that cares about this, support them through volunteering or door knocking or donating. And and then not to forget that the democratic process doesn't end at the at various elections. The democratic democratic process is ongoing. So now is the time to get involved in, in other societal organizations that care about this and start to move the ball when it comes to, uh, to the climate crisis. Um, and the final thing is, is don't panic because um, this, is, this is really heady, heavy stuff. I think everybody who fully absorbs the consequences of the climate crisis are, is going to have to go through a period of... of um, of eco-grief, of eco-anxiety. Um, but then it's our natural uh, way, the way we've evolved is to, to naturally break out of that and start to act. And so we need people to not be paralyzed by the threat that's coming towards us and saying, you know, we do have solutions, we do have hope, and let's work towards that. This has been The Big Question. We've been talking to Dr. Joe Vipond, an emergency physician and a clinical assistant professor at the University of Calgary's Cummings School of Medicine, about climate change and health. 
For more stories about research at the University of Calgary, visit explore.ucalgary.ca. The Big Question is a co-production of CJSW and the University of Calgary. In The Big Question, we explore the world's biggest challenges with researchers from across the University of Calgary. The Big Question airs monthly on CJSW. To listen to past episodes, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit cjsw.com or explore.ucalgary.ca. I'm your host, Braden Alexander. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time.